Hey, everybody. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to say, if you are a fan of the show and get something out of it, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Even something as little as a dollar a month really goes a long way. So thank you. Enjoy the show. Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello and welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. I hope you all are staying healthy, safe, and well uh, wherever you are around the world. I apologize for the length of time that it's been since I've put out an episode. I've been working on several things, uh, one of which I just released last week, uh, a new episode of my ambient music podcast, which is called Sam Plays Ambient Music. Um, very, very descriptive right there. Um, but you know, I, I usually don't go for, uh, you know, promoting music and, and that sort of thing and, and, and telling people to listen to it, but I'm, I'm really happy with this, how this one turned out. So if you need a, a little bit of calming, relaxing music to take the edge off, then uh, please check that out. And I believe there will be a link in the description of this episode. And another thing that I've been working on in the meantime is this episode. You'll notice that it is part one, and I'm not sure how many parts there will end up being. But as I started working on it, I found that it was, there was so much to get into. And to put it out as one giant four-hour-long episode would just be too much. So I felt like breaking it up into smaller parts might be... A better way to go about it. But in general, I, I feel like I might start to take more time to focus on longer type of episodes to really, really get into this, this deep, deep, profound material. There is so much, so much depth in, in the things that people see when, when they have an NDE or a particular spiritual experience that I think it's of really great value to be able to take the time and really explore the different things that come up. And, and I've been finding that very, very compelling, and I hope you will as well. And so this might be sort of the new normal that I, I start to do with, with these episodes. Either that or I'm just going crazy in quarantine and, <laughs> and rambling to myself. Uh, you can be the judge of that, but I think that there's a lot, lot to be understood, a lot to be, uh, I don't know, a lot to help us start to speak the language of NDEs and dreams and inner phenomena, and and I've I've just really found that to be uh, profound and and meaningful, and so that might be the way that I start going with this, perhaps. Uh, taking a little bit longer to put out episodes, but uh, having longer episodes that that dive in deeper depth, deeper depth, <laughs> dive dive deeper. Um, and so I hope I hope you all enjoy this one because I'm I'm really excited to get this out. This was absolutely fascinating to to get to talk about. The one we are going to discuss today is is coming from a woman named Melanie. This occurred late last year in 2019. And I got this 
experience from the nderf.org website. And uh, as ever, I'll post a link uh, in the description. But Melanie is suffering from cancer, and she was undergoing chemo treatments. And while recovering from one of the treatments, she had this amazing, uh, symbolically rich experience. And then it continued uh, a bit after she came back to her body. There was uh, related phenomena. And uh, it was it was absolutely fascinating, some of the things that she saw and, and the the depth that was there. And I spend quite a bit of time not only talking about the particular images and feelings that she went through, but also what I've learned from Jungian psychology in how to interpret um, dreams, symbolic images, inner phenomena. Because even in the experience, Melanie herself says that she was confused and upset by some of the things that she saw. And so I feel like it's worthwhile to, to start being able to discuss what some of these symbols and, and things mean and, and perhaps using some of these ideas in order to get in touch with our own inner lives. Because I think we could all benefit from that from getting in touch um, with, with ourselves. So, without any further ado, this is Melanie's near-death experience. I have cancer. I have never known pain and discomfort as I did whilst undergoing chemo. A few days after treatment, I was in pain. I couldn't get out of bed because it was so bad. I stayed in bed to rest. It was only when I returned from my NDE that I realized I had gone in the first place. It seemed so natural at the time. The quote, essence of me was reduced to a simple thread of purple frost about 15 centimeters long. The string stayed together without needing to be connected by string or anything. It was simply energy that held them together. The color of the strings varied in tone from pale to deep purple. The essence of me came from the center of my ribcage. The scene moved so quickly. I didn't notice getting there, but it went to outer space, and I rested on a rock that was floating in a place. It has all the other purple frosts and essences of people. It was hugely peaceful. I felt so comfortable and at home there. I didn't mind being there at all. It didn't matter that I left my only daughter behind. From where I was, I could see a gigantic circle of other essences, all in shades of purple, pink, and blue. No one spoke to me, but after a time, I had healed enough and was sent back. When I got back to my body, I felt a depth of awakening. It wasn't like I simply arrived. It was as though I came back from somewhere much deeper within me. I had a new sense of not being afraid of death. I felt very connected with the universe, and that wasn't a feeling I had ever experienced before. I then felt worried that the universe was preparing me for death and had reached out to me. 
A few days later, I then saw in my sitting room a massive, dark, paper-thin, mirror-like window floating in the air. I could only see it from certain angles, since it was flat and paper-thin. It then disappeared. A few days later, I was in my kitchen in the morning, and I saw about twenty much smaller windows all over the place. They just hang in the air. I was upset that I could see something so weird. Again, it made me worry that the universe was preparing me for dying when I am not actually dying. I haven't had any issues like this in the last couple of months, but I am having to deal with feeling strangely connected with the universe. I've never been interested in crystals or anything like that, and this experience made me search on Google. I found, quote, Reiki, and the woman had purple crystals on her website. Then I discovered Reiki is about the universe, etc. I was astonished that my experience had any resonance with anyone else. To me, it seemed so baffling and weird, because it was not a part of my world at all, but it seems to have found me. I actually contacted a professor of philosophy at Oxford University. He said it sounded like an NDE. After some thought, I have concluded that the chemo drugs reduced my cells through the body so successfully that my brain actually believes it's dying. All this, quote, stay positive stuff is said to cancer patients for a reason. I believe that as my brain thinks it's dying and starts to panic, that's why I believe I had the experience. Note, this experience is only about six months old and it takes at least seven years to integrate an experience into daily life. Readers may wish to search the NDEs for people who have had cancer for more information. Additionally, Pim von Lommel, a leading Dutch cardiologist, did a prospective NDE study that lasted seven years. The conclusion is that NDEs are medically inexplicable. One section tested for psychological issues such as fear. There was no correlation or way to predict as to who would or who would not have an experience based on emotions like fear. Ergo, fear is not the cause of an NDE. However, if the experiencer wasn't dead or in an imminently life-threatening situation, then it could be that what she experienced could have come from the brain. Okay, so that was Melanie's near-death experience, or possible near-death experience. Here, before I get into some of my thoughts on, on her experience, I'm going to read some of the questions at the end of her account on the nderf.org website. So the first one. Did you suddenly seem to understand everything? Everything about the universe. I understood humanity, but can't describe it. It was like layers of humanity and what makes us human. To love, to laugh, to find humor, to value small things. Did your experience include features consistent with your earthly beliefs? Content that was entirely not consistent with the beliefs you had at the time of your experience. 
I don't believe in all this madness with crystals, etc. I consider them crazy stuff. And yet, I had the experience. What life changes occurred in your life after your experience? Large changes in my life. I am still receiving treatment for breast cancer, so that has changed me too. But I think I'm more connected with the universe. It's so hard to articulate what that actually means. I feel slightly different to other people now, and yet more connected with them. Was the experience difficult to express in words? Yes, I feel like I don't have the vocabulary to explain exactly what happened, and also to describe the layers of humanity that I felt rebuild inside me. Okay, so with that, let's start to talk about Melanie's experience a little bit. I think I'd like to start by saying uh, I wish Melanie a full recovery from cancer. It sounds like her, her battle with breast cancer is ongoing, and so... Uh, let's keep her in our prayers and hope that she makes a full recovery. So I can't imagine what she's going through. And many thanks to her for wanting to share what her experience was, especially while she's going through such a difficult time and, and, and an ongoing battle with cancer. So let's, uh, let's all wish her a, a speedy recovery and to return to full health. Uh, it sounds like from... The, her experience and the answers to the questions at the end of the experience that this was quite a, a transformative type of experience for her, that it was quite affecting. And it, it sounds like she kind of doesn't, doesn't quite know what to make of it. And I think <laughs> that's perfectly understandable because this, is, oh, this could be one of the most transcendental ineffable experiences known to mankind. I would say it's probably the most. And uh, clearly from the answers to her questions, it seems to be quite hard to put into words. And that is a very common feature that we see in, in many near-death experiences, spiritual experiences, that sort of thing. Very hard to find words to capture them. And so um, I think I, I might do something slightly different with this episode in that I kind of want to hone in on, on what I feel like I can add to this. I mean, I've talked a couple times before about, I don't, there's so many reasons someone might want to learn about a near death experience or, or to, to hear about other people's near death experiences. Like maybe they have a fear of death or maybe a loved one has just passed away and they, they want some idea of what it might be like to, to die or the dying process or something, but, or, or to hear some of the amazing emotions and feeling that, that people tend to express while, while talking about a near-death experience or what they went through. It's just quite, quite moving just the way that people manage to describe it, especially with with it being such a indescribable type of phenomena, probably, probably the most, like I said, the most indescribable transcendental experience that a human being can go through. And so there are all these possible different 
reasons that someone could could want to get into near-death experiences, I guess, or to listen to this show. And I, I want to keep that in mind, but I, there's part of me that feels like I, I don't know if I can quite capture that, <laughs> that amazing feeling of, of oneness and love. And it's like, it's hard enough for the, the person themselves to describe it. For me to add anything to that, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm, I can do anything in that regard. I, I do my best, but that feeling side of it is certainly profound. And, and I think that's one thing that drew me into talking and learning about near-death experiences because it, it, it is very meaningful. But there's this other side to near-death experiences that we get a bit more of, a, a taste of perhaps, in Melanie's experience. It's these strange images, these strange uh, strange forms that the experience takes, and it varies from person to person. And I think that one of the things that I might be able to shed some light on or, or help make sense of in my limited way, <laughs> believe me, it's quite limited, but is to be able to talk about some of this symbolic language. And I make frequent reference to one of the earlier episodes of the podcast, which was Hafer's near-death experience, in which she kind of lays out this idea that if we could start to have a vocabulary or, or be able to speak this symbolic language, we would almost, I don't know, have a greater understanding of ourselves and our place in this grand scheme of things, as vague as that is. But, but certainly that idea of being able to, to understand these images, I think, is a very useful thing. And that's something that I want to uh, be able to help with if I can. I, I think it's certainly reasonable to say that our our world is in desperate need of being able to talk about and find meaning and 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 depth in things, uh, which there certainly seems to be a lack of these days. And so, near death experiences offers us a somewhat strange but uh, <laughs> fascinating kind of avenue to be able to talk about this symbolic language of images and and forms and metaphors and and all this kind of fuzzy stuff that we don't really have a good grasp on for good reason <laughs> you know it's it's difficult type of stuff it's hard to put into words obviously but as I have made abundantly clear in, in my past episodes, to, to start to approach that, I have drawn a lot upon the work of uh, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist from the early part of the 20th century, who made several fundamental uh, contributions to the field of depth psychology, of, of psychoanalysis, and his approach to taking an inner experience such as a dream or a near-death experience, taking that seriously and, and taking it on its own terms as kind of a symbolic presentation of, of meaning and a kind of 
inexhaustible and infinite sort of way that there's a, a depth there that we can't quite get to the bottom of. But, but being able to reckon with that, I found that incredibly useful to be able to talk about something as, as profound and, and beyond us as near-death experiences. And so I use some, I would say, Jungian methods to try to approach a near-death experience. So just to give you some idea, like I read one of these near-death experiences and I see purple frost and I think, oh my God, what, what, what the hell is purple frost? You know, it's like, what do you make of that? Okay, well, I kind of try to break it down into its component elements and then make sort of a web of, of associations or web of images around uh, what is presented. And in the Jungian school or method, I guess this is called amplification. So you take a, a somewhat nebulous and vague image or symbol and you try to find different examples of its meaning uh, in the culture from which the person comes from, and then kind of broadening out into the broader cultural experience of mankind to find examples of this, whatever the symbolic form is, and, and what the different associations are, what the different meanings are, and how they might apply in a given circumstance. And the reason we can do this is because like I've mentioned many times before, the near-death experience is not consciously created. It, it comes upon us. It, it's, we're thrust into it by something, and I do not know what that something is. But it has, a, a, if they were just random gobbledygook, then there would be nothing to talk about, and, and I wouldn't bother. But there seems to be meaning in all of these vastly different type of forms that the near-death experience can take, these different configurations, these different images and forms and symbols that appear spontaneously of their own accord to the individual. So what I wanted to do was to try to elaborate and show you the, the method that we can take to try to make sense of, of some of these deep symbolic forms and images and to hopefully that will be of some benefit to to you and in, in your own life or or someone you know just to to try to elaborate on this understanding a symbolic way of viewing the world because we're not very good at that i mean just just culturally it's not something that we are well equipped to talk about and we tend to think that these are anything Anything on the inside is just subjective. But like I said before, because this is happening objectively to an individual, we can gain certain associations, certain meanings that are connected with perhaps a certain image or symbol. And so I wanted to read a couple of paragraphs or pages from certain uh, Jungian works uh, I think there's three that I'm gonna I'm gonna read from just to try to give you a sense of of what this method is and how we can use it to to better understand something as as vast and 
profound as a near-death experience. So this first reading that I'm going to do is from a book that I've read from before, which is uh, Psyche and Matter by Marie-Louise von Franz. And what she's going to talk about in this chapter as it relates to our discussion so far is she's going to talk about something that we've we've brushed on quite quite a lot here recently, which is the idea of, of number and this idea of having necessary statements regarding number, which is things that you must say in regards to a certain mathematical statement or, or, or mathematical idea. There are certain extensions of the logic that allows, I guess, math to happen. And she goes on to relate that to a certain certain idea of perhaps a mythological logic. And that's something that we'll elaborate on more. But the idea that in, in certain configurations of a story, of, of images, of symbols, of, of characters, of archetypes, certain things kind of have to happen almost in, almost in a mathematical way or the story doesn't make sense. I mean, have you ever watched a movie where something is just off the, the writing is, is off. It doesn't make sense. Like, why would that character do that? He's, he's not that type of person, and yet he does this thing that is wildly off. We have a certain, certain mythological logic that we follow with, with stories and images, and what von Franz relates that to is to psychological processes. So she starts out by talking about a causal orderedness, which we've mentioned before in connection with the idea of synchronicity, uh, a pairing of an inside, uh, inner and outer event in a very meaningful way. So it's, it's about a page and a half, but uh, I wanted to read this as kind of a setup to how we can start to approach this idea of, of what can we say about certain forms as they appear to us in an, in an NDE. Okay, so this is from the chapter Meaning and Order. In his book on synchronicity, C.G. Jung introduces two new concepts into depth psychology concerning the world of so-called chance. One is the concept of a-causal orderedness, and the other is that of synchronistic events. The former means a regular, omnipresent just-so-ness, such as, for instance, the specific speed of light and the quantization of energy the time rate of radioactive decay, or any other constant in nature. Because we cannot indicate a cause for these regularities, we generally express this just-so-ness by a number, which is, however, based on an arbitrarily chosen length of space-time. One could theoretically also call a quantum of energy one, and then add on two, three, four, etc., but it would be completely impracticable because of the smallness of age. Such a causal orderedness exists not only in the realm of physics, we find it also in the human mind or psyche. The simplest example is that of natural integers, because there too we find a just-so-ness in the form of statements we have to make about a number. Jung calls this, quote, the method of the necessary statement. An example would be the statement that six is a so-called perfect number,
because 1 plus 2 plus 3 is identical with 1 times 2 times 3. This is an obvious just soness for which we cannot indicate a cause which produces this result. We could only say it is so because 6 is the sum of 1, 2, and 3, but this would be a mere tautology. In the field of dream interpretation, this method of necessary statements is the same as that which Jung more frequently calls amplification. In it, we do not proceed arbitrarily, letting our imagination run free, but we use what Jung calls disciplined imagination to find the associations to a symbolic image. For instance, we cannot say that Circe in the Odyssey is a benevolent mother figure, because the very context refutes this. In the realm of the natural integers, the statements of connections, such as 2 plus 2 equals 4, seem to be even more cogently necessary statements than those about mythological images, hence their connection with logic and mathematical reasoning. Modern mathematicians try to make their discipline as logically watertight as possible against psychological implications because they regarded the latter as purely subjective, while they thought that mathematical logic concerns a purely objective, true, non-psychological reality. It deals with the truth which serves all observers. Okay, so I know that was a little dense, but hopefully that starts to paint a picture of how we can start to understand why we can make statements about certain symbolic forms the way that von Franz lays it out there, she, she talks about how there are certain necessary statements that we can make about numbers and, and mathematical logic, which seem to have a psychological aspect as well as, uh, as much as we'd like to think that they're purely objective phenomena, but they occur within us as well as out in the outer world. And, and the same sort of idea might be able to be applied to mythological and symbolic material. That certain images through the process of, of amplification of finding their connections, their relations, have a certain logic to them in their connections to one another and in their meanings. And, and that they have, the, the content has a certain objectivity to it in a way that we can make statements, necessary statements about a certain symbol or, or something that appears in an inner experience. Uh, for instance, I was talking to a friend of mine and he brought up the example that you can have a dream of a snake and the, what the snake means is going to be dependent on the, the context of the dream. But so the, the meaning might be a little unclear, but dreaming of a snake as opposed to a gopher or something there's definitely a kind of a, a web of associations that we attach to the image of snake that we don't associate with a gopher or something, something else. That even though a certain, I don't know, a symbolic image or form can be quite ambiguous and not well-defined, there's still characteristics to it that we can point out and try to, to tease apart and, and make conscious to better understand it given the context that uh, pertain to that particular image or manifestation. It, it's, it's something that we don't 
like von Franz was talking about, that we prefer a watertight logic of math where one plus one equals two, and, and there's no arguing that, and hey, that's fine. But this is starting to get into how we can make sense of an inner experience in, in a way that is somewhat objective and not as squirrely and subjective and feelings and a way that can be applied to to perhaps all of us. There's a sort of universality to it, and that's something that I w- struck me uh, when we were reading Hafer's near-death experience, is talking about perhaps the universality of this symbolic language. And it's it's almost as if you have to imagine that if someone was trying to talk to you in pictures and situations and they couldn't use words, how would they do that? And obviously, you know, I can't say whether that's actually the case of what's going on, but that's how it appears, at least, since there is a deeper meaning there that there's some kind of, I don't know, uh, meaning or, or, or something that seems to be communicated in, in the given situations and feelings and uh, context that the person is thrust into. Like I said, it's not completely haphazard and random. There's usually a feeling tone to it, a certain moral quality to it that's consistent. And, you know, there are variations, of course. but And so it, the way we can approach uh, a dream or something or a, a near-death experience is coming from that place of, okay, if, if someone was trying to communicate with me, in a way that they could only use pictures and feelings and situations and a kind of metaphorical language that isn't direct, how would they do that? And in fact, what we tend to hear in most near-death experiences is that communication is done in a form that is, I guess, directly mind-to-mind, that there's no simple, obtuse language getting in the way. It's kind of a direct communication between uh, the individual having the experience and whatever being or angel or deity that they're talking to. And so I think this being able to to try to tease apart of of how we can start to understand this language is, is somewhat important, at least for our understanding of this strange phenomena that people go through uh, at the brink of death or, or close to it. So the next paragraph that I'm going to read from is a book called On Divination and Synchronicity, The Psychology of Meaningful Chance. This is again by Marie-Louise von Franz. She's overrepresented on this podcast. But here's another example of this sort of mythological language or this mythological logic, these, this amplification and, and the necessary statements that we can make about given symbolic material. Okay. We can therefore conceive of the collective unconscious as being ultimately always the self or that same one thing which transcends our grasp. So, If, for instance, we dream about the single archetype of the hero or sun god, it is as if we saw one facet, and when it rotates, 
we see yet another facet of the very same thing. Looked at from that angle, time comes in. For which facet does one see first? There is a time sequence in what one perceives, as evidenced in mythological tales which have not only typical figures. For instance, in fairy tales there is not only the typical figure of the king, or of the dumbling, or of the witch, or of the helpful animal, but these elements recur again and again in different forms and different myths. An extensive survey of many mythological systems shows that certain basic elements are always retained. The divine child, the hero, the snake, the dragon, the hero's enemy, etc. These are not, however, only typical images, as we call them, but also typical sequences and connections. Namely, where the pearl is, there is always the dragon, and where the dragon is, there is always the pearl. Or one can predict that if the hero is in connection with the helpful animal, he will always succeed. In all the myths and fairy tales I have studied, I have never seen a case where a hero with helpful animals does not win out. If he picks up a helpful or grateful animal who has promised to help, with absolute certainty it can be predicted that there will not be a tragedy but a happy ending. In that way, one can predict the time sequence in the fairy tale and predict what will happen with a certain accuracy. This means that there are not only typical motifs, but also typical sequences of archetypal events. Okay, so in that case, she was referring to, I guess, something slightly different than what we originally started with, which is the idea of, of what methods we can use to approach symbolic material to make sense of it, to, to be able to, to talk about it in a somewhat objective way and, and for what it might mean to us, what it might mean to, to you and I for, for what Melanie experienced or any of the other people that we've, whose experiences we've read so far. But in this case, she was talking more about the time phases of perhaps certain motifs and patterns in the psyche, uh, certain archetypes and, and how one tends to precede another. And in certain situations, in certain contexts, there's a kind of sequence that, in her case, she was an expert on fairy tales, and she analyzed fairy tales as if they were dreams in a way, the, what they meant psychologically. And, and what she talks about in that last passage is talking about how kind of the same idea of a necessary statement, like we were talking about earlier, how a given situation, a given pattern that arises can necessarily lead to a conclusion or, or logically there, there's a next step that comes next. And, and so you can kind of predict what will happen based on the setup or the, or the given situation. And I know that doesn't fully square with what we started out with, but again, it's, it's the same idea of perhaps there are certain things we can say about something that we perceive as radically subjective because it's personal and extremely individualistic. I mean, no, no two near-death experiences are exactly the like, but perhaps we can start to stitch together a sort of idea of what some of these processes might mean. 
And this is something that I haven't been able to grasp, but which might be an area that I can further explore as we go along. I mean, I suppose it might take reading uh, lots and lots and lots of near-death experiences, which I feel like I've done, but probably not nearly enough. And that is to, in this same vein, to maybe be able to say, well, if, if someone experiences X at the beginning of their NDE, then they will see Y later on. That if, if there's some kind of sequence or, or general pattern that we might be able to abstract out of all these vastly different experiences. And I can kind of give a general one, I guess, of saying, okay, usually a near-death experience is someone floating above their body for a little bit and going through a tunnel and then talking to a being, a loved one, perhaps a uh, divine angel, something like that. And then there's more variations, I'd say. You could have a life review of what the person went through, or perhaps they're told, hey, it's not your time, you got to go back. And then the person returns their body, and it's kind of an unpleasant experience to get back in one's body. That would be a general sequence of a near-death experience with, and I will throw, throw this in with a huge asterisk, that there are lots of variations, which if you've been listening to, to this podcast for a while, I think that's fairly obvious. Like people don't always experience it in that sequence. But, but if there are certain patterns which we can pick up on, perhaps if we can translate it into a, something universal, into something that, that is present within us in, in the psyche, that has a meaning that we might be able to to understand as, I don't know, like a, a, a blueprint for death or something, something that we can can perhaps glean from the dying process and what what it might imply for who we are and, and what we're doing here and all that, you know, important stuff that people like to, to talk about. But that is all very speculative. And like I said, I haven't noticed any direct airtight (laughs) um, type of relation between a given image, I don't know, like a tunnel and then something that comes after it. You can only kind of make broad, broad generalizations as to what happens because they're, like I said, they're all individual, uh, individual experiences. But that would be something that I, I'd like to be on the lookout for. But I know this, this is kind of a long introduction to just to talking about Melanie's experience, but I want to try and build this, this toolkit for being able to talk about something that is you know very baffling, very confusing, very subjective and squirrely and, and all this stuff that we don't have the right language to talk about. And so there's... There's one more passage that I wanted to read, and this is coming from a biography of Jung by Marie-Louise von Franz, (laughs) doing three in a row, in which she's going to talk about this method of dream interpretation of amplification and what it means and and how, how it relates to us and why even bother doing it in a way. Okay, so I'm going to read this real quick. 
Although in the last analysis, the myth, like the dream, is, quote, its own meaning, one cannot ignore the historical fact that myths do not have the same meaning for people living in the present that they had for the past cultures. If they are to have meaning for us today, then they must be reinterpreted psychologically. The method which Jung developed for doing this is in principle the same as that used in the interpretation of dreams. It consists chiefly in so-called amplification. This means that one gathers together motifs as analogous as possible, first from the cultural environment of the mythic symbol, then from other areas, until it becomes apparent that these different motifs are like different facets of the same basic theme. The amplifications are then placed in sequence in the narrative, which itself provides a certain selection of the amplifying images. Footnote. If a fox, for example, appears helpful in the context, then the emphasis must fall principally on the positive amplifications, such as cleverness, etc., and less on the equally valid aspect of the animal sorcerer, etc. End of footnote. When the collection of images has thus been enriched, then interpretation follows, that is, the translation into modern psychological language, which means the connection or association of the images to psychic experience which is livable in the present. An interpretation, therefore, is never absolutely right, but will have, to a greater or lesser degree, a clarifying or illuminating and enlivening effect. Indeed, the interpretation has no goal beyond that of reconnecting consciousness with the source of energy, which is the archetype. This source of power is the primordial spirit from which our individual consciousness has, so to speak, differentiated itself away, and in the process lost a part of the primitive energy which is contained in the myth. It appears to be the purpose of the myth, as is the case with the dream, to keep alive in our memory our psychological prehistory, right down to the most primitive instincts. And the assimilation of the meaning of myths has the effect of broadening and modifying consciousness in such a way as to bring about a heightened aliveness. A merely intellectual interpretation is never satisfactory, because the feeling value of the archetypal content is just as important as its understanding. That is why Jung says, psychology is the only science that has to take the factor of value, i.e. feeling, into account, because it is the link between psychical events and life. Psychology is often accused of not being scientific on this account, but its critics fail to understand the scientific and practical necessity of giving due consideration to feeling. In the Jungian interpretation of a myth, it is never a question of unambiguous interpretation, but rather one of finding a new expression of the myth in modern language, an expression which can never be quite independent of the nature of the interpreter. It is a question of an as-if, which can never lay claim to absolute validity. This has irritated many scholars and researchers, but nothing can be done about it. It is always a question of whether the interpretation, quote, sheds light or not. 
in spite of a good many different reservations, fairy tale research has at least partly accepted something of the Jungian hypotheses, especially the idea of the archetypal origin of the fairy tale. Okay, so I found that passage very important, and, and I really resonated with it because I think it, it lines up with what I mentioned before that came from Hafer's near-death experience, this idea of, of translating a, a perhaps primordial prehistorical type of language into a modern context. And I particularly liked the, the part where she was talking about how there's no absolute validity to interpretation. It's not unambiguous. You know, there's always going to be this kind of infinite, uh, ineffable quality to it because we're dealing with something that is, well, I guess can't be fully quantified or fully covered in, in any particular way. It, it's got an inexhaustib inexhaustibility to it. And particularly that it it has no value as a merely intellectual exercise that its only interpretation of symbolic images is only as useful as it is to uh, connect with our own feelings, to have some kind of connection or meaning with the attempt to do so. And, and that's essentially what I'm striving for here, at least as well as I can. It's to to make a meaningful connection to these transcendental, overwhelming, profound symbols and images and, and experiences that people go to go through that we can connect, we can use to connect to our own inner world or our own inner experience. We can use to connect to ourselves, perhaps is a more poetic way of saying it. That by talking about these, we can gain the vocabulary and perhaps the, the grammar to be able to connect to something within us, each individually. It's like I said, I, I cannot tell you what's going to happen when you leave this mortal coil. It's a mystery, but I think what NDEs provide is, is a, a perhaps a, a glimpse into ways that we can integrate some of this wellspring of it's almost like a new mythology in a way i mean you have stories in the bible of of people being whisked off into heaven and and certainly in other religions worldwide too i mean it's it's kind of this new fountain of something that mankind has been chewing on for millennia just this ultimately profound experience and and I know we, we, we don't tend to think of it in that way because we're, we have a, somewhat of a, a strict idea of religion, but all religion is based on somebody's experience, somebody's religious experience. And I suppose the goal would be to, to be able to relive that in one's own life, depending on the religion, of course. But, you know, there's all, all sorts of variations and different aspects and that sort of thing. But... To be able to talk about NDEs in a way that allows us, affords us the opportunity to 
connect in a deeper way with our own psyche, with our own selves, with our own inner nature, perhaps, or beyond. You know, you can uh, certainly get into divine territory as well of connecting with God or, or, or our deity or, or, or what have you. But at least it, it opens that door. And I think that paragraph by von Franz really lays that out, that it's not, she kind of talks about how you can't make a full science of it. It's never going to fit into the full scientific full scientific uh, method. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not suited for that in any, any, any way because it's a purely, purely individual experience. Now, it is empirical that the person perceives the experience through, I suppose, sensory functions of, <laughs> although in NDEs they seem to be somewhat unlimited, perhaps that that's how they're described. Like people can see colors that they never seen before, hear frequencies and sounds that they never heard before, smell things. I think I've read a couple where people bring up smells and stuff like, uh, you know, but the senses are still the seem to be somewhat the, the mediating factor of the experience. So it, it's still empirical, but there's no way for, more than one person to corroborate it, the actual content of the experience. And so what we're dealing with is a purely, uh, well, you, you have to take the person's word for it. And, you know, obviously you can't believe everything that you hear, but I think most people, vast majority of people are absolutely sincere when they bring forth their experiences to share because they're trying to make sense of them. They're trying to, to share what they went through and, and to be able to hear other people's experiences and to know that they're not alone, that they're not going crazy, that sort of thing. And so this is probably the longest introduction I've ever done to, to being able to talk about uh, a near-death experience, about what Melanie went through, but I really wanted to set up the foundation for how we can go about discussing this this grammar, these symbolic forms and images that people experience. And in this case, Melanie seemed to be quite confused by saying like, well, I don't believe in all this crystal stuff. And I I personally, I'm, I, I get it. You know, I'm with her on that. Like, you know, there's a lot of new age, woo woo kind of stuff that goes along with it. But, and then she finishes the sentence saying, but I experienced it. And so, so all of this that I've been building up to is how can we be able to make sense of that in a way that it isn't just silly new age nonsense, right? How can we translate this into from, you know, something wild and that people rolled their eyes at into something that is meaningful, that says something about our psychology, perhaps, about our souls, about who we are as individuals. Because like I've said in many <laughs> previous episodes, I don't discount the, the old, oh, that you're just imagining it, or oh, that's just subjective, oh, that's just, that was just a dream. The psyche is real, it happens to us, it's something to be reckoned with. And so 
if we can have a toolkit, if we can have a methodology to be able to talk about it and make sense of it, I think that will, like von Franz says, serve a purpose into connecting us with what's inside. Okay. So now <laughs> let's start talking about what Melanie experienced. Okay, so this might go into quite a bit of depth to a level that might be excessive, but it's only because I really want to try to explore how deep some of these meanings can go with something so so profound. So to start with, she describes what happened to her, and what she says is, the essence of me was reduced to a simple thread of purple frost about 15 centimeters long. So just from that sentence, <laughs> I imagine that we can spend quite a bit of time trying to find the associations, the amplifications that, that just go along with that particular image which she describes. And hopefully that will be interesting of use, uh, something that adds to the depth with, in which we can discuss these, these kinds of experiences, because I think there's a lot there. So to start with, we can talk about the word essence. Now, talking about the toolkit of some of the different methods we can use to, to explore and expand the particular language and images that show up in a near-death experience, one of the things we can do, which I've done a couple times in previous episodes, is to look at the etymology of certain words. Now, usually it seems like it's quite difficult for people to describe a near-death experience in, in words, right? So people do their best, but I think by looking closer at the words that they do choose, as hard as that is to do, we might be able to gain some insight into what is really going on in these particular moments. So looking at the word essence, I mean, we most of us have a general idea of what that means. It's something that is essential, right, uh, which is the word, but something that is is core, that's deep, that's the indivisible, that's uh, you can't get rid of. It's what's necessary, right? That is the part of her which is leaving her body. So let me pull up the etymology to try and expand this a little bit. Okay, so the word essence is coming from the late 14th century, uh, derived from essentia, from Latin, which means being or essence. And there's, uh, I guess, another, it goes on to explain a couple of its different meanings. It says originally it meant the substance of the Trinity, having a Christian connotation there, perhaps the substance of God, which is a very, very fascinating association for this particular word in its roots and its origins. It also means a basic element of anything, so an, an essential part of something. It kind of has a general applicability there. And then it also has a meaning of an ingredient which gives something its particular character and is associated with uh, distillations of oils from plants or a fragrance or perfume or perfume and so those are all kind of interesting associations as well it, it's the spirit or the, the 
the essential character of a substance. In this case, when Melanie is using it to describe what she became, what she turned into, what she, the beginning of her experience, it, it has those connotations of, of something which is irreplaceable, which is all of the superfluous, I don't know, things that are unnecessary are stripped away. It's only that that which is left, which is, I don't know, like a diamond, which is pure and and uncorrupted and, and the pure spirit of being that is inside of her, which is very interesting. And I think that lines up with a lot of people's descriptions of that part of them which continues into this near-death experience or any particular spiritual experience. The, all of the non-essential, the non-necessary parts are stripped away, and that part which is left is what the, the human, the individual truly is. And so I think that is a, a very fascinating description and, and something which, uh, like, I didn't know that the word essence had an association with the substance of the Trinity, which is a very, very cool idea. That it is what God is made of, and that uh, perhaps could be the part of us which survives after death. It's very, very interesting. And so that's just a very brief example of, of how, how deep some of these roots can go and, and just trying to describe the full breadth of someone's experience that there's all these layers of meanings that reach back into history and, and even just the words we use to try and capture what someone went through. And so that is what we start with. And another, I don't know, small interesting detail is that she goes on to say that this essence of her, this, this thread of purple frost emerged out of the center of her ribcage, literally the center of her, her body is where this this essential part of her emerges out of that just just strengthens all of those associations of that which is central, that which is the core of the individual. That is the part which undergoes this this journey outside of the body, so to speak. Okay, so we got the first part of that sentence down <laughs> a little bit. Now let's continue trying to plumb the depths of what the rest of this sentence can mean that the essence of me was reduced to a simple thread of purple frost. So a thread. This is something I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on because we've talked about it quite a bit, particularly in the last episode, which was Navina's fear-death experience, the idea of a silver cord that is represents one's life stretched out through time and that when the cord is cut, then one's life is, is over. And, and that sort of thing. And there's association with the river of life, perhaps, a, a long flowing strand, lots of symbolic associations. But here again, we, we get that particular imagery. And it, you know, it's very well could be associated with, with the idea of time. We are living temporally, living in time, and that would probably be a good representation of it. I remember like going on YouTube and doing one of those crazy try to imagine different dimensions type of videos, that sort of thing. And I don't know to what degree they are 
accurate scientifically or mathematically, but one of them was saying if you try to imagine living or seeing a four-dimensional object, if the, you looked at a human being in four dimensions, they would look like a long snake or thread. At, uh, at the one end would be an infant or a baby, and at the other end would be a, a old man or old woman. So that's just an interesting symbolic formation of, of perhaps a way of representing a human life. And here again, we come across that. Okay, so we haven't gotten very far into talking about her experience, but we're at about an hour in now, and I think this might be a good place to stop this particular episode, and part two will pick up where this leaves off, and continuing to look at some of the symbolic imagery that is in Melanie's near-death experience. I know that I devoted a great deal of this episode to just talking about the method of, of amplification, of the necessary statement of how to approach this material, but I only did that because I feel like it's so important, because we, we don't have science to deal with this sort of thing. Science is about something that everyone can uh, verify, observe. It's about repeating an experiment. It's about replicability. But what science cannot account for is, a, is whether nature can be creative. What if there was a, a phenomenon that only occurred once? Only once. And... There was only one individual to see it. You, you can't make a science of that, or, or not in the strict sense of the scientific method and experiments and hypotheses and all that. All you can do is to try to compare it with other moments of creation in nature, other people's experiences, and try to abstract out any significant patterns meaning, feeling, and to try to make a connection with that. That's the best we can do, and that is just the way it is. I mean, there are certain, certain accounts where there is a moment that the NDE can be corroborated in some way, such as the experiencer hearing a doctor say something and then and then when coming back to one's body reports it to the doctor and the doctor says how did you hear that you were clinically dead that sort of thing and that's amazing i mean that's that's just incredible and i think that's kind of how most people approach it but that's never going to convince you know 7 billion people of the truth of it. it, it just is one of those things that makes us shrug our shoulders. It's not a scientific proof in any particular way. This is an irrational fact, an, an irrational psychological factor that we each must experience individually within ourselves. That is the only, that is the only 
way to prove it is within ourselves. When we see the patterns, the meaning, the feeling in our own inner psychological experience. So, okay. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope this was uh, interesting at least. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. You can check out my website. You can uh, find the Facebook page. Uh, we have some episodes on YouTube, on Spotify. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend and uh, leave a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. And uh, yeah, that just really helps get the vis- visibility of the uh, the podcast out there. So I appreciate it. And now, uh, going based on <laughs> what we did last time, uh, I instead of a quote on death, I shared a a uh, piece of music, and I wanted to do the same for this episode as well. So similar to the. Last episode, I wanted to share an end with a piece of music that I found hauntingly beautiful and, and spiritual and powerful. And in this case, it is a old blues song called Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. It's by a, a guy named Blind Willie Johnson, and it's mostly instrumental, but he has a kind of humming, moaning uh, melody that he sings along with with the guitar, and he's playing the the guitar with a, a knife, uh, allegedly a a pin knife or a small knife to to create the bottleneck slide kind of sound, and it's 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 one of the most deeply impressive and and soulful pieces of music I've ever heard, and appropriately. It was included on the on the uh, Voyager record. They when the Voyager spacecraft launched in 1977, they included a bunch of different things from Earth as as in case <laughs> uh, by some miracle it fell into the hands of of someone who could appreciate it out there in the universe. Um, so they had stuff like like laughter and a human heartbeat and the sounds of frogs and crickets and volcanoes and uh, different greetings and different languages and stuff. And they included a couple pieces of music and they included this, this amazing song. And it, it's very emotional for me um, just because of how, how raw it is. And so one of the reasons that they included this was uh, Timothy Ferris explained he says, Johnson's song concerns a situation he faced many times, nightfall with no place to sleep. Since humans appeared on earth, the shroud of night has yet to fall without touching a man or woman in the same plight. And so, a very important song for, for mankind and, and for expressing that fear, that that deep longing for for a place to call home, a, a roof above one's head, and if that doesn't have to do with life and death 
and the meaning of it all, then I don't know what does. So, this is Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. Ah. Uh. 